We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. their romance is like when you look at that and look at the fact that like he doesn't like, he hates linton mm-hmm. and he tries to get revenge on him in various <laughs> ways but like yeah the fact that like truly he he was okay just visiting her while she was married he had this confidence that like their love was this true real thing that like her marriage to linton couldn't interfere with and that he wouldn't as long as kathy wanted linton around he wasn't gonna fuck with that mm. There's, like, something weirdly, like, I think especially in these days where so many times, like, love triangles with a girl and two Mm -hmm. guys end up with, like, the guys punching each other out. It's just, like, there's something honestly kind of refreshing (laughs) about that. There, There is weirdly this respect for her. Yeah. That, like, lies at the heart of it. Which, like, I hate to describe anything, like, positive to Heathcliff in this relationship, but I, I do think there's this, like, compassionate love in a way I don't think they feel for, like, anyone else <laughs> that sort of kind of keeps it okay. And, t- and it's the problem is that, you know, they involve other people and then the things keep going wrong with the other people. But Yeah, this is, this is no uh, kissing booth two situation here. This is a... Uh... <laughs> I watched the kissing booth too. Lee's older brother Flynn, he's stupid hot, but totally off limits. When did you get the boobs? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> even I haven't even watched Kissing Booth one. Uh, well, okay, this is all attention, but I actually think Kissing Booth Booth One is secretly amazing. Not for any any <laughs> legitimate reasons. It's all unintentional, but it is one of the funniest movies I've seen. Okay. I was sorely disappointed by Kissing Booth 2. This is this is your review for Kissing Booth <laughs> series franchise, whenever it is. <laughs> but I do think you're right that everything about this relationship is despicable. And I should hate it. I should hate these characters. But there's this inherent respect between Heathcliff and Kathy that even when they're yelling at each other and saying, just the most terrible to each other. You just get this sense of respect and love and admiration that they have for each other. And that, at least for me, it carried over into my reading experience where I couldn't help but admire it because there's so many characters in this book who are spineless in so Mm. many different ways. I suppose you could argue whether Kathy is spineless because she did, after all, marry Edgar Linton for the worst possible reasons. But Heathcliff is never spineless. When he says he believes in something, he f***ing believes in it, and he pursues it. There's no wishy-washiness about him. Mm-hmm. Edgar is wishy-washy as f***. F***ing Ellen Dean is wishy-washy as f***. I... Yeah, that's Pin and Ellen Dean. I have a whole, I have a whole rant yes. for later. I'm so excited to hear about it. But we, we literally start with the narrator himself, who <laughs> one of the first things we learn from him oh is he got cold feet the moment his crush looked at him. You, you just get the embodiment 
pun intended, I guess, uh, of someone <laughs> who is spineless. And then you contrast that to Heathcliff, whose story then follows. And we just see that Heathcliff has every single right to hate Kathy, but he doesn't because he ultimately can't dispute the fact that he loves her more than anything in the world. And he's not going to deny himself that. And there's mm. there's like there's a kind of courage in that, I guess, that's also refreshing. <laughs> and it's I'm so torn because Heathcliff is a monster. He is a monster in this book. <laughs> it, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter because God, damn it, at least he stands by his conviction. So there's a really I mean, he's a great antihero. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he's basically the villain of this book, but he's also essentially the protagonist. He's the character that this story, within the, like, if we leave out the framing device, but even with the framing device, the story, like, sort of starts with the framing device character meeting Heathcliff. Ellen Dean's narration starts when Heathcliff arrives, and it ends with his death. And he's, yeah, certainly the character that makes plot happen, (laughs) Um, who takes action where while everyone else is dithering around. And he's just, I can't help but compare to Jane Eyre. Um, And I will say, I think Jane Eyre is a technically better book. Oh, yes. I I would agree with that statement. Leagues. Yeah. And I think its themes are a lot more coherent. And But like, the, the one thing I will say is that I have a really hard time with Rochester in the end. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> Reformation by, like, almost dying is a thing. But, like, as a connoisseur of redemption arcs, <laughs> yeah. it it just feels a little, like, way sauce to yeah. me. And I really appreciate that, like, Wuthering Heights never tries to, forgive my language on this, like, neuter Heathcliff. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> he gets to be an absolute to the end and but there still gets he still gets to have this moment of kind of like you sort of get to see the resolution of his emotional mm. arc in that like he decides not to f*** up the thing with Harry and Catherine mm. he makes that choice in a moment of like seeing Kathy in them and that allows him to not forgive them I think uh-huh. but to like make peace with Kathy and then start seeing her ghost and die that's like he still gets to be an absolute throughout all of that, but like he gets that one moment of like, it's not even human kindness because it's not for them. But he gets this one moment of like not being an absolute bag, and he gets to go to grave and get married alongside Kathy and have their bones <laughs> meld together and then be ghosts on the moors. And you know what? Good for him. I'm glad he continues to be absolute trash throughout the entire book mm. and gets what he wants in the end. There is a line, I think he frames it as when he sees Harrington, he doesn't see him as a human being, but as a personification Mm -hmm. of Heathcliff's own youth. And I do think that there's that idyllic scene at the end where Harrington and Catherine are smooching it up over a book. And in a lot of ways, it felt like ideally what the relationship between Heathcliff and Kathy would have been if they had just been left alone and yeah. had it been tormented by people around them who were either out of jealousy or just pure spite or racism probably was a big part of it too given Heathcliff's Romani background 
again, that's not exactly clear on that. But if if they had just been left alone, they could yeah. have been happy. They wouldn't have unleashed this flood of misery on everyone else. And I think the book actually, this is something I appreciate about it. The book does go out of its way to say that, hey, under different circumstances, these people might have been much, much better because there there is a push to attribute Heathcliff's horrid self to his nature. But there's the narrative takes the time to also say, well, also, he was treated so vilely by mm. uh, so many people. And I think there's a line about something along the lines of that behavior he was subjected to would have turned a saint into a fiend. That's the tragedy of it all, really. If the circumstances had been slightly different, if people just kind of allowed them to f*** off, this would have had a happy ending for them. I mean, I guess mm. it's, they would still kind of see this as a happy ending, being buried next to each other and haunting the moors, because <laughs> they are those kind of people. But mm -hmm. it would have been slightly happier, I suppose. Well, they wouldn't have f***ed up so many other people's lives. <laughs> 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 and, and they really do. And the next generation is an interesting replay. Heathcliff even admits it. He deliberately manufactures Harrington to be him. And then Harrington ends up essentially in the same situation of, like, losing Catherine to Linton. Mm. <laughs> but he also gets the girl in the end. And there's... Like, is some really interesting things done with the doubling of the second generation to the first generation. But at least in, in my opinion, I think this is where the book really kind of falls down. I think the section that is the Kathy Heathcliff youth section is by far the strongest yes. part of the book. Yeah. And once you get into the second generation, I find it more theoretically interesting because I think that Catherine, Linton... And Harrington, while interesting, like, sort of mirrors, but also, like, foils to uh, the previous generation, are, like, less interesting characters. Yeah. And certainly the relationship between them, like, when Harrington and Catherine get together, it's just kind of like, eh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Linton is, a, again, a character that I just hate, plain hate. Mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy reading a single page of his existence. He was just, like... Truly hateable. I wonder if you're the worst person I've ever met. It's just, like, harder to get invested. Catherine is much less dynamic than Kathy, mm -hmm. but also, like, she'll have moments of impetuousness, but it comes off as, like, she makes dumb decisions, it feels. <laughs> yeah. Not that Kathy didn't, but, like, there's an interesting difference in that because she's, they're trying to betray her, or Emily's trying to make her come off as a sweeter, better person her bad decisions somehow look worse. Because when Kathy's making trash decisions, you're like, yeah, go off, girl. <laughs> you're trash. When Catherine's making bad decisions, you're like, oh, that was stupid. You should yeah. know that. Have, have you not learned? You know, so it's a weird kind of like double standard where because she's a quote unquote better, as in like morally better character, we expect her to make better decisions and are more irritated when she doesn't. I, I think I struggle because, like, I'm so theoretically intellectually interested in this idea of, like, the two generations and all of that. 
but I just, I, the connections aren't there. The big passionate speeches aren't there. The characters just really feel like they're, and I mean, to be fair, they are being orchestrated like puppets by Heathcliff mm-hmm. in the narrative. But like, whereas Heathcliff and Kathy feel like so natural and right, and they feel very dynamic in their own right, the second generation feels much more like a narrative device that's happening. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely struggled with the second half of the book. It's so nice to hear hear you complain about these characters in a way that I'm always complaining about characters where they're narrative devices. <laughs> That's satisfying. Uh, they feel very one note. Linton, not Edgar Linton, but Linton the kid, he, his character is a hypochondriac on steroids, basically. Mm. Catherine is headstrong but nice and that's about it and then harrington is illiterate (laughs) and that's just kind of all the character from him that we really see until the end i guess we see a little bit more of who he is like but even then it's just it it almost feels cheap it feels what you were saying with the uh, rochester kind of scenario Harrington goes from illiterate, violent boy to gentleman seemingly overnight. And I guess even within the narrative, it's only been like six months or something like that. Mm. And it just feels so unearned. And Ellen just dismisses it as like, oh, well, it was just part of Harrington's nature. He was just always a born and bred gentleman at heart. and. Once he was free from the corrupting influence of Heathcliff, he could emerge his true self. He's getting handsome! It just takes a little effort. Just a little elbow grease. Which also feels like bullshit. Because the book had spent so much time up to this point arguing the impact of circumstances on Mm. people. And then in this one case, it's saying like, well, the circumstances don't matter anymore. And it's like, hmm, okay, buddy. Yeah. Like multiple characters do that thing where they're like, they tell you in advance, they're like, Harrington, he's got a lot of good qualities. It's just that like, yeah, no one's, he's just a neglected feral child. Yeah. So there's that setup of like people telling us, but like that's never really demonstrated other than like he wants to impress Catherine. But it's also fairly clear he wants to impress Catherine because Catherine's really hot. Yeah. Like, so he kind of gets screwed over by the narrative, too, because we see him a little bit as a baby because um, Ellen Dean's taking care of him then. But then there's, like, this big gap of time where he's left to become feral child. <laughs> and he's kind of got some of the more interesting stuff going on because, like, Heathcliff makes a big deal about not only has Heathcliff made Harrington him, essentially, but in this new version harrington loves heathcliff harrington admires heathcliff harrington does not feel wronged by heathcliff at all he has no conception of that and when heathcliff dies harrington grieves that's the whole thing so it's like god that would be really fascinating to have gotten more of and really seen the relationship between them and why harrington prior to heathcliff coming and had been left with his alcoholic father who didn't care about him at one point like dropped almost dropped him off (laughs) like down the stairs 
<laughs> killed him as a baby, which Harrington doesn't remember, I'm sure, but, like, you know, his dad sucks. So, like, it makes sense that Harrington would have, like, imprinted on Heathcliff like a little baby duckling. But, like, we really don't get to see that. Like, none of their interactions demonstrate that there is, like, this affection and fondness between them. Well, like, not on Heathcliff's side, obviously, but, like, yeah. we don't really see that. So, like, it feels very, like, Again, something we're told, like, and I feel like if we had been shown more of that, then we could see that sort of the innate goodness in Harrington more and like, I don't know, buy more like, you know, with a little bit of, of nurturing, he would bloom like a beautiful blossom. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it feels very like we're told, we're told, we're told. And then like this thing happens and we're like, okay, yay. And it just doesn't. And again, like, it's such a bummer that the romance in the second half sucks. <laughs> Agreed. But it's funny because, you know, that same complaint about how the book is telling, not showing us basically everything about Harrington can also be applied to Heathcliff and Kathy. It's just that they're so God poetic about it <laughs> that it doesn't matter. Mm. And that's what it comes down to. Probably the major flaw of this book is that it, has such a hard time just showing. You can get away with that if your writing is so good that it doesn't matter. And yes, Emily Bronte's writing is that good for Heathcliff and Kathy. It doesn't match that with basically all the other characters. Not to say that they don't have moments. I think the scene where Harrington and Catherine reconcile is one of the cutest things I've ever read. Catherine is trying to make all these overtures of, uh, of like, here, let's be friends again and blah, blah, blah. And Harrington is just like, shut up and go away. And so then Catherine comes by and sneaks in a kiss on his cheek. And he's like embarrassed about it, but he also likes it. And she likes it. And then she goes through this process and they're all sitting in the same room together. But she wraps mm -hmm. up a book, makes Ellen give the book to Harrington and says, like, present this as a gift from me. And it's all just really charming and adorable. And so that scene, for me at least, worked. And I guess if the narrative had leaned into that a little bit more, making things a little bit cuter with these two characters, maybe that would have worked. Maybe a bit too much. I don't know. The whole second half is kind of a mess, and I just don't know how you would fix it. Because at the same time, they're they're really interesting things. Like the whole thing with Heathcliff basically seeing two mirrors of Kathy in these kids. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That there's so much that you can do with that. That I ah. Uh, yeah. Basically, this book suffers when Heathcliff and or Kathy are not on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna present my argument for a fix, mm. um, and this will tie into my Ellen Dean rant. But I don't. She the framing devices should not have been a thing. Ellen Dean should not have been narrator of the story. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which it's really like again conceptually interesting that she is, and I'll I'll get into that later. But like. Because she has to be the narrator, she's just kind of forced into all of these scenarios where, like, 
her character wildly diverges on what she'll do depending on where <laughs> Emily needs her to be. Uh-huh. And it's so irritating. And I just got so frustrated with her at so many points. But also, it just doesn't allow her to be in certain other places where she could be. And I feel like it also keeps... The story, as you were saying, has this very, like, mystical, mythical quality to it. And it keeps it, like, weirdly grounded in this very matter-of-fact character that I really feel like it needed that extra push to be free. And I think then the sort of, like, mythic doublings of the second generation could have been really cool. So my proposed scenario is that you need a more, like, avant-garde, let's say, narrator. Like, Mm. I think it would be kind of cool if the book was, like, narrated by the moors or by Wuthering Heights, sort of by Mm. the, like, landscape. Because then you could do some really cool, like, surreal things with that. Yeah. And would certainly be an opportunity for lots of pretty writing. Either that or something kind of like the narration of jazz where it's like this weird like societal looking in narration, which I think I agree in keeping it removed from the like main characters of the story. I think that does some really cool things, mm-hmm. but I think that you needed a more abstract mystical narrator to get the story where it needed to be. And then it would have allowed Emily to like have more scenes that are not just like Ellen Dean accidentally sitting in on moments. And so that is kind of my proposed fix. I think that just would have given her license to do like a lot more and be a lot more experimental. And for instance, the moment when Catherine and Harrington first meet, like uh, Catherine's trying to like go explore these like caves or something that are like, you know, she talks about them being like fairy caves. And Harrington ends up like showing her around a little bit. This is when like she's 16 and he's only a few years older. And before they start really fighting, if we had seen this sort of sweet beginning to their relationship only to have her spurn him when she finds out he's supposedly her cousin and be like, he can't be, he's like a servant, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, which is what starts their relationship being bad. Then them like reconciling after all those years, like that cute moment you described would have been even cuter because you'd be like, finally, (laughs) it's been repaired. They've gotten back to that first day when they had this magical time, blah, blah. Mm. There's so much that's so limited by the narrator in this way that's just not, like, great. And the only good thing you're getting from it being Ellen Dean is that we're not in, like, Kathy's perspective Mm -hmm. or Heathcliff's perspective, which I don't want to be in. Like, I think they work so much better from the exterior. Uh, I, oh, I just, she, mm, drove me up the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she is truly one of the most obnoxious characters in this book. There is one moment that made me laugh so much where um, it's after Kathy died (laughs) and Edgar very reasonably is grieving the death of his wife. and, (laughs) And Ellen comes in being like, well, you know, it's very selfish to mourn the dead because they are in a better place. And it is like, fuck you oh, all oh God, my 5,000 ways, Ellen, <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. My favorite Ellen Dean moment is towards the end where Heathcliff's like in his manic state. Yeah. And she's like, so now that you're like in this place, have you considered God? <laughs> <laughs> Like, maybe you should read a Bible. Oh, my God. 
And he has the best response to that. He's like, this reminds me that I need to make sure that I'm buried with Kathy yes. like I want. Yes. Oh, it's so good. It's beautiful because uh, he actually doubles down because she's like, you need to repent. And he's like, I have nothing to repent for. <laughs> Man, that guy is facing judgment day. But Good for him, honestly. It almost felt like a parody. It's interesting because I know that apparently Bronte was a very devout Christian. And that moment, mm-hmm. I remember it stood out to me because it felt very on the nose it started to read like one of those jesus pamphlets that you just find lying around Mm -hmm. they're just terrible pieces of writing and that's what it felt like and i wonder if she meant that like she wanted that to be a genuine moment of like yeah if heathcliff had some bible he'd be a better person but oh my god it reads like such a parody it is so funny Ugh. It's really, it's just hard to tell because, like, Ellen Dean is supposed to be sort of the moralizing mm-hmm. center of the book, which, like, to our 21st century eyes tends to look not good. <laughs> um, it's hard to tell how much we are or aren't supposed to buy into that moralizing. I, I think it'd be really hard to, like, evaluate right. given, like, just the big cultural differences. Because, like, I could make an argument that, yes, we are supposed to take that seriously and that, yeah, Emily Bratte meant it legitimately. I could also make an argument that, like, if she was publishing Wuthering Heights at the point in time she was, not having those moralizing elements, people were already upset by how crazy and, like, wicked this book was. Yeah. Not having that moralizing voice would have got it, like, absolutely trashed. Mm -hmm. You know, I can make arguments both ways for why it's there, but it's just, Ellen Dean is the worst. I wonder if you're the worst person I've ever met. And one of my professors just uh, wrote a book I haven't read yet, um, but looks really interesting about, like, the role of the paid-for caregiver in Victorian literature And so I was thinking about that reading this book and like there is something kind of fascinating about having it narrated from the point of view of this woman who is the servant, the paid for caregiver ideas about duty, about like she gets caught in a lot of situations where like she should do one thing, but like she's forced into doing another because she's a servant and, you know, and obviously she's privy to all of this. The idea that the servants are just kind of there absorbing all of this like all of those are like again theoretically interesting concepts but like because Ellen Jean is so clearly a plot device to get our little narrative from mm-hmm. all of its various points like it just doesn't she just comes off as like the worst because she'll do that thing where like she's supposed to be telling Edgar Linton if Catherine does anything goes to Wuthering Heights Sometimes she'll be like, I've got to tell him immediately, and she'll do so. And then sometimes she's like, oh, I'll keep the secret from him and just burn the letters. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, again, whatever Emily needs her to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that inconsistency works at a character level because, again, it plays into the whole unreliable narrator bit. Mm-hmm. But at times it's just so absurd. The lengths that Ellen will go to not divulge very relevant information to people who should know. It's it's unbelievable. And then she does tattletale enough times that no one should trust her. Right. But they all keep telling her things. I'm like, 
Stop telling her things, guys. (laughs) Well, I do want to say I do like your idea, this radical avant-garde idea of it being narrated from the perspective of the landscape. I'm just curious because you are more knowledgeable about Victorian era stuff. Is there an example of that? Because when I first heard that, I'm like, oh, well, that's just not possible. That wouldn't have even have existed as a concept back then. But I actually don't honestly know. I don't believe it would have existed as a concept back then either. I'm not saying this is like a historically mm-hmm. uh, like accurate recommendation I'm putting out there. Just that like if in terms of like looking at this piece of literature as a piece of literature removed from time period, I think it would have functioned better. There might have been, I think there was definitely poetry narrated from the perspective of the landscape because this is post-romantic. So I feel like they definitely did that as a thing. Obviously, nothing is coming to mind right now. But no, I, I don't think in terms of like an actual novel that would have been, at least not in anything I've experienced or touched on. I was going to say, in some ways it does feel very romantic, capital R romantic, in terms of its use of nature in embodying these characters, especially Heathcliff. But where I appreciate this Versus the romantics is that the romantics huh, romanticized nature to a degree that it's like, oh, it's clear you're all rich white people that have <laughs> massive estates that you can just frolic in trimmed grass that's taken care of by your servants. The, the nature in this book is fucking nasty. Mm. So many characters either nearly die or do die (laughs) as a result of being exposed to the elements. Yeah. It is harsh and cruel and unrelenting, which describes Heathcliff to a T. I do appreciate that aspect about it, that it doesn't, there's no sugarcoating the harshness of nature itself because it's a dog eat dog world out there. And boy, do we see a lot of dogs in this book that are trying to eat a lot of people. (laughs) It's true. So many dog bites. So many, like, mortal dog bites. Yeah. People nearly die from dog bites. Apparently the reason for that is because, as I learned in the preface from Charlotte Bronte, is that, or was it the preface? It might have been the notes. I can't remember. But uh, Emily Bronte was actually bit by a dog as a kid, which, you know, that's always very scary and clearly it traumatized her unlike steinbeck though at least she didn't murder all the dogs in this story (laughs) she did have heathcliff like chain up isabella's Mm. dog to the fence she describes it as he like hung it from the fence and the poor dog was really and that was really traumatizing yeah i'm sorry no it's okay i i wasn't i was fine but i i did feel really bad for that dog indeed But she gets the dog back later. It's fine. It is fine. Although there is a great line from Heathcliff just showing how much of a bastard he is because like Isabella confronts him later about that. And rather than repent for clearly egregious behavior, he's like, if I had the chance, I would hang everything in your life up like that. (laughs) And I would murder you, too. (laughs) Uh, 
Isabella, like, like I get, you know, the infatuation with the idea of what Heathcliff is. Uh And I feel like, honestly, Emily Bronte was a little bit, like, she could see the future a little bit. She's like, there are going to be women Mm. who read this or, you know, people that like men who read this. And uh, they're going to be like, oh, I want a Heathcliff. I want someone to love me that much. And she's like, all right. I'm going to give you Isabella, who thinks Keith is a romantic hero from a novel, and I'm going to show you just how shitly he would treat you. But, like, it doesn't make it any easier when, like, <laughs> Isabella still goes off and marries him after he, like, abuses her dog. Yeah, everything about that is bad. It, and it's also, like, Isabella is just, like, a weird... She's also moralizing, even though mm-hmm. she's also terrible in her own yeah. way. <laughs> Oh my god, the whole thing with like Hindley and the gun and her, which we didn't even touch on in the summary. But it's a wild scene. <sighs> yes. Okay, so bare bones laying it out for the listeners. What happens is essentially when Isabella, for the little time Isabella is at Wuthering Heights post marrying Heathcliff, uh, Hindley is still alive. And he really wants to kill Heathcliff. I want him dead! He's also drunk, and he also keeps talking himself out of killing Heathcliff, and he's scared about it for whatever reasons. Isabella also really wants Heathcliff dead. I want him dead! Very understandably. He's a very abusive husband to her. But, like, one day, Henley's like, all right, I'm going to do it. When he walks through the door, I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to shoot him. Mm -hmm. And Isabella's like, no, you cannot. (laughs) Not because she, like, doesn't want Heathcliff dead, but just, like... Anyhow, what ends up happening is that, like, she warns Heathcliff that Hindley's inside with a gun and then is like, all right, I've done my part. And he, he decides to walk in and get shot. No skin off my back. Yeah. But, oh, my God. And then the scene just keeps getting wilder because then yeah. Heathcliff manages to break into the house. Hindley tries to shoot him, but misses or something happens and, and he, like, hurts himself. And, like, this gun also has a knife attached to it or something like that. So he, like, cuts himself on the recoil. And then Heathcliff jumps in and just starts being the living <laughs> out of Henley. And is, like, nearly about to murder him. And stops himself because he recognizes that, like, <laughs> he's dependent on Henley in order to get the property when Henley dies. So then he's Heathcliff stops and then he orders Joseph to clean up the blood. And so he like he throws Joseph down into the blood pool of blood. And then Joseph starts praying while kneeling in this pool of blood. And Isabella is just sitting off to the side laughing her fucking face off. What the fuck is this <laughs> So that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's truly, it's a crazy scene. And it's just like, Isabella, if you just let Henley kill him, so many of your problems would have been so... I know. Because I think, well, I don't know how, I don't know how things would have worked out in terms of like, Henley was really in debt to Heathcliff. I don't know if that would have gotten just canceled out by Heathcliff dying or if like that Isabella would have had the debt. In which case, like then she could have, you know, inherited Wuthering Heights but yeah anyhow she's a weird character because like yeah she does get very like moralizey while she's there about like yeah not wanting to murder Heathcliff but on the other hand she really wishes he was dead 
Which, like, I mean, is is valid. <laughs> I, I think that there are people out there who would not do murder or allow someone to be murdered, but would also be like, I wish they were dead. But that said, it just comes off very strange, like, in her particular situation. It's hard for me to say if that's a case where the that inconsistency was intentional or not. Mm. And that also gets to the second half of this book, because that focuses very much on Heathcliff's revenge plot, which is ultimately that he would own both the properties and then just dismantle them, erase these families' names from the world. And... It's weird because it feels like the book kind of loses track of itself. But in a way, that kind of works with the thematic point of that section. That Heathcliff is so obsessed with revenge that he loses track of why he does anything. And in a way, he regains that vision by the end when he goes crazy and starts seeing Kathy's ghost everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. But you're right that it it doesn't quite work. You see all the pieces there. And that's the the frustrating bit. Because I see it. And I guess that's the further tragedy of Emily Bronte. Because it it very much reads like a debut novel of someone who's a Mm -hmm. really strong writer. But all the pieces haven't quite fallen into place yet. And I'm just realizing we've been doing a lot of debut female writers uh, novels (laughs) this season. Very odd. But anyway, um, you see the pieces. You see where the, obviously you see the talent. And it's just not, it doesn't quite get there. On the strength alone of the first half of this book, like I love this book, but the second half definitely is much more of a slog. If only because the characters are <laughs> so much more annoying mm-hmm. than the first half. Yeah, I'd give it three stars on Goodreads. I would have given the first part with Kathy and Heathcliff probably five, but then I would have given the last bit like two <laughs> or maybe one. Yeah. Probably two. It wasn't It wasn't actual like horrible. It's just like I really didn't enjoy it. So I, I settled on a, a three as a middle ground for my middling feelings. Because, mm. <laughs> yeah... The ending of the book kind of redeems itself because then we get Heathcliff monologuing basically about Kathy. Yeah. Like some of the best lines come at the very end. So, you know, let's give Emily, Emily Bronte some credit here. She does finish strong. Yes. And she does. The final image is really haunting, but kind of sweet moment. Where the mm-hmm. the narrator Lockwood just travels to the graves of Heathcliff, yeah, Kathy, yeah, and it. Edgar. Go ahead. He said, uh, I sought and soon discovered the three headstones on the slope next to the moor. The middle one gray and half buried in heath. Edgar Linton's only harmonized by the turf and moss creeping up its foot. Heathcliff still bare. I lingered round them under that benign sky, watching the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, and listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth. Gorgeous. Which is, of course, further proof that Lockwood is a narrator who is always rock. (laughs) (laughs) Because 
Heathcliff and Kathy are absolutely haunting those moors. Yes, indeed. Although now I just remember it because to add to the the legend of Heathcliff on his tombstone, because it only <laughs> says Heathcliff yeah. and they don't know when he was born. So it only includes the date of his death. But that also gives it like a sense like, oh, he's kind of always been here. There, mm-hmm. There's no definitive beginning date. This could be like a, a Tom Bombadil kind of situation. He's been around since <laughs> the beginning. Uh, <laughs> yes, he's very. Yeah, I mean, like we've been saying, very like supernatural, eerie figure in pretty much everything, including his tombstone. Boom. I'm a ghost. Is there anything else that that you would like to discuss that we haven't have really any talked other about? Big thoughts, other than yeah, it just really made me want to reread Twilight Eclipse. <laughs> 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 my associations are so strong, uh, and that is my favorite Twilight book. Come at me, haters! Twilight is truly well. It's something. Don't expect literature if you want to read this book. It's a wild ride, but also don't expect Heathcliff to be a hero because he really is a bastard. I guess that's all I've got to say. Oh, wait. Oh, no. There's one thing I want to add. This is a stupid detail, but uh, at the very beginning, Lockwood has this weird (laughs) dream where he he goes to church in this dream and it's Joseph Mm -hmm. sermonizing. And there's this whole thing about whatever. And then in like the middle of the dream, Lockwood gets up and yells at Joseph about how he's committed the unpardonable sin. And then Joseph's like, no, you committed the unpardonable sin. And then they're like, go get them, boys. And then everyone just starts fighting each other in the church. And it reminded me of the scene from Kingsman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does. (laughs) <laughs> I did think of that scene too. And actually, since since we're on this, I will say my last note is that Joseph should serve as a good warning to any writer who <sighs> wants to write in a dialect mm. of why that might not work. Uh, I started just skipping anything he said because I legitimately just, like, it would take me too long to parse out what he was saying. Yes. And honestly, none of it was important anyways, so. The foibles of a debut writer. Because some people can write accents really well. Right. It's a very delicate process. There's like good ways to like indicate an accent and like get a person to sort of hear that in their head. But if you go too hard into it, you end up with whatever Joseph is, which is just absolutely. It's illegible, basically. Yeah. I'm trying to like, let's see. Find an example. If I try and read it out loud, I think it will just be like offensive, honestly. I think it'd just be good to illustrate to people. Yes. Okay. I'm I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. God, he's all over the place and why can't I find him now? Oh. Ah mun have my wage and ah mun go. Ah bed damed to de where I'd sarved for sixty year. I keep going. <laughs> it's not good. Heathcliff is good. Yeah. Just just read all the lines spoken by Heathcliff and Kathy, and you'll just get such a marvelous experience. Uh, truly. Highly recommend, uh, even if you don't want to read the book, go into the quote section on Goodreads. <laughs> yes. 
Because there are some zingers. Or I guess read Twilight Eclipse because that apparently copy and pasted from Goodreads. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Hope you had a good time. Like, comment, subscribe. Find us on Twitter, Tumblr, uh, Instagram at Reread Podcast. Hooray. Buy, buy books from our uh, bookshop affiliate link. Oh, f- uh, let me get this right. <laughs> you do this every time. <laughs> <laughs> Bookshop.org slash shop slash reread podcast. It, it, it helps us. If you're buying books, well, don't buy them from Amazon. Support exactly. small bookstores and support small podcasts. Small podcasts, Indeed. if you will. And yeah. Until next time. No idea what we're doing next time. I will find out. <laughs> but we'll see you then. <laughs> Hasta la vista. Bye bye.